Okay, there we go. We've got the comments. We've got a few hellos. Okay, look, welcome everyone. Um, it, it's my pleasure and, and thanks so much to, to Greg Dow for joining us. Just um, for those of you in Australia, most people in Australia know who Greg is. And if, if they don't know who Greg is, you just say Elvis and, and then they know who he is. But for those in the UK, I'll just introduce Greg. Greg is the co-founder and currently the chief business development officer for a chain of clinics called um, My Foot Doctor that started off 2004, I think, and Greg. has now grown to over 50 clinics, um, quite, quite a substantial operation. So Greg will background us a bit on the history of that, and we can certainly um, lead into a number of business tips. And Now, I've known Greg for a while, but what he was doing with his clinics didn't really um, come on my radar until something to do with 4X Beer. Now, 4X Beer is a, a huge tradition um, in Australia, and they were the sponsors for the Queensland State cricket team. And then this press release turned up that um, Greg's cl clinic, my foot doctor, took over the sponsorship from 4X. And I think it was a little controversial at the time. I think my reaction was, yeah, what, are you, what are you doing? But I think it's then I sort of realized that, that they were onto something quite big. So we've, we've got a lot of topics to talk around, around business, but obviously sponsoring a cricket team obviously has led Greg into treating and dealing with a lot of crickets, cricketer players. And he's got a lot of... Um, a lot of international cricketers all around the world in his shoes or shoes that have been modified. So cricket's another topic we're going to talk about. Um, and also, I just thought I'd just share this press release. Um, as part of the My Foot Doctor group, there's the iOrthotics Foot Orthotic Lab that's just sort of moved over and changed into 3D printing. So there's issues that we can get into there. But I'm also sure if Greg had his way, he'll spend the whole time talking about this. Um, Greg is the lead singer in a band called the Blue Cats and I, 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 I've gone off the word Elvis impersonation this is an Elvis tribute band so um, looking forward to everything that Greg's going to share with us this morning so I'll hand over to Ian to start with the questions well thank you very much <laughs> uh, we've had some we've had some fascinating people on this on this show to this to this point but I don't know that we've ever had quite so much to potentially try and cover in, 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 in one space. So we're going to try and keep it on the track of business, I think is, is reasonable to say, just because clearly you're, you're, that's where you're pretty successful. Um, and, you know, a couple of days ago, I know, I know that I alerted this, uh, you to this. We had a, um, a discussion arise in one of our UK podiatry groups, which I believe you've since joined and, and had a little glance over as well, just at, at my request. I have. And, the reason it fascinated me was that I've never seen a post attract 750 comments in the space of 24 hours on any topic whatsoever, clinical, non-clinical, in the way that this one did. Um, and there was another thing that fascinated me, which was that in 750 comments, and I, I'll, I'll profess to not reading all of them, um, it didn't seem like anyone really answered the actual question. So I wanted to pitch the question to you and just get your take on it from your business perspective, if, if that's okay. And essentially, it was about how we set our prices in private practice. And, and of course, the, the potential for where we set our prices to influence the perception of our value in the marketplace with our, with our, with our consumers, with our, with our customers, our patients, etc. And um, 
the two two part question was should we although we can charge what and this is from robert isaacs although we can charge what we want clearly because it's private practice should we charge what we want and if there is an upper limit which there surely always will be what what defines that upper limit i'd love to get your take on that if that's okay greg Ah, yeah, sure. Well, um, going back some years in Australia, we, um, we actually had a fixed, uh, fixed price. So, uh, they had a, a schedule, if you like, of prices, um, by the Australian Podiatry Association. But when the ACCC, which was our consumer watchdog, came along, they, they said you're not really allowed to advertise, um, scheduled fees or recommended fees. So, um, <clears throat> I guess that's when probably, uh, some of the podiatrists, uh, in the country started, um, inflating their prices or deflating their prices. But I think the, the honest answer to that is the market. The market will, uh, will dictate uh, what, um, what they'll pay. So <clears throat> um, uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, I think a fair day's work for a fair day's pay is, uh, is an old cliche, but um, I personally don't believe that you, you, you should be, um, you know, charging thousands and thousands of dollars for, um, uh, for certain, certain you know, items, orthotics or treatments or whatever. Um, and I think the market will dictate uh, what they'll pay. In, in Australia, we, we have health, health funds that, uh, that cover uh, a, certain, a certain amount so the patient has an out-of-pocket. Um, I know it's a little bit different uh, in, the UK, in the UK, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't mean to sound ignorant, but um, um, there's, it's probably a little bit more public um, podiatry with the NHS, whereas over here it's more the other way. It's more private with a little bit of public. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a topic that comes up here as well. But I think the, the market, the patients that are coming through the door will, will dictate the price. <clears throat> and um, forgive me for glancing down, down in this direction. This is where my laptop is and where all the, uh, where all the questions are and things. Um, <laughs> do you, you know, a lot of the, the, the comments that were flying back and forth were essentially people then stating what they charged and telling other people they thought they weren't charging enough. They need to put their prices up um, with the suggestion that if we, People charge low prices. It's detrimental to podiatry as a, as a profession. Um, it doesn't give across the, the professional approach. Now, I, my, I've got my own personal views on this, and I don't think it's that simple. I don't think everyone just having higher prices increases our value, nor does it make people think um, that we're more professional than we potentially are. But um, again, what, what's your take on sort of uh, on the best way to approach this? It clearly can't be as simple as put your prices up and everyone will, will, everyone will just perceive that we have better value. No, I think it, it look, I think <clears throat> in my opinion, it's always been the, 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 the price um, comes, comes last. I mean, I know that you probably should, you know, think about that first, but I think it comes down to what, what, what level of service you're offering. If you're offering the, uh, the patient a, a better level of service, I think you've got to put the hard yards in first. And as I said, then the market will dictate you know, what, what they'll, what they'll pay. But, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, we've always, we've always, uh, been in um, our clinics have always had the latest in technology um, you know we pioneer a lot of a lot of um, podiatry technologies in Australia laser and uh, cam orthotics um, um, shockwave therapy uh, that sort of stuff um, 3d printing for orthotics I mean and these things actually do have a, um, an actual cost involved um, but I'm, I'm surrounded by much smarter people in my in my business quite a robust um, support team and they um, uh, they look at um, the uh, pricing and, and uh, advertising, marketing. We've got a, um, a full, uh, full team, finance team, a marketing team, uh, a HR team. We've got a training uh, team, education team, and um, 
my, my, my role in the business isn't to set the prices, but in going back historically, we've always um, believed that um, the market will dictate it. And actually, last question on, on this topic. Sorry, I've gone great. You know, it actually just reminded me of, of somewhere where I used to work and in the town, the, the busiest person in the town was the most expensive. Um, he was nearing retirement and he, he used to get very frustrated because he'd put his fees up because he wanted to lose a few patients so he wouldn't have to work so hard. Um, yeah. He, he was still the busiest and he used to say, you know, I've got, I'll double my fees, I'll lose half my patients, I'll make just as much money and I won't have to work so hard. The problem is yeah. it, didn't, it didn't work out for him. He didn't lose patients. <laughs> but I bet he didn't, he didn't get busy because he charged the most. I bet he, he yeah. toiled. He came out, graduated, he learned, he did yeah. up his CPD. Uh, he was good to patients. He wrote letters back to doctors. He, he, you know, he, had, he had great interpersonal skills. Um, I bet gradually he was able to increase uh, his, his fees. I don't think you just come out and uh, because you have a podiatry degree, you whack, a, whack on a shingle and, 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 and whack on a huge price. List. It doesn't, doesn't work like that. I think the market dictates. You, you, if, you, if you're good at what you do, um, then um, you know, people might, might pay you more. But um, we, we have a, a set uh, policy across our, our group of clinics. Yeah. Um, and I just want to mention this only because I've just seen two, two, two of my UK colleagues that have come on, Jonathan Small and Tony Gavin. I want to say hello to both of them. Hopefully they're hello. still watching. And, um, and in the UK, they, they run a course. I mean, you probably saw it, if you read through that thread, you probably saw it mentioned, the sort of uh, work smart or not heard, or, or sometimes it's abbreviated to WSNH. And um, as someone who probably didn't really know what that meant, uh, and this is something that uh, this is kind of interesting to me. I've not been on that course. I should I should clarify. Um, but I, I and I think I've said this to 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 someone publicly. So hopefully it's not the first time I'm saying it. Uh, hi, Jonathan. She just said hi. I I have reservations about the name of it. And I think I've said this to Jonathan before. And I apologise to Jonathan if this is the first time I'm saying it in public. But I don't necessarily agree with the message of not working hard. I've always uh, subscribed to the principle, the more, more the Gary Vaynerchuk, the rock kind of principle of be the hardest worker in the room. Uh, you and your business, are you, you know, uh, where, where, where do you sort of sit on that? Um, you're speaking with me now, not, not, your, not your viewer from the UK? With you, with you, yes, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I, I, assume, <laughs> I assume so, but I didn't want to jump in. Um, look, uh, that's not my uh, personal uh, personal view as well, but um, I, um, I've, I've always been a hard worker. Um, uh, my, my wife Sally and I started the business many, many years ago from, from scratch, um, uh, from a single practice, and, you know, there was many, many late nights. Um, I've always worked long, a long day. I think a fair day's uh, work for a fair day's pay. So um, I, I've heard that um, acronym before, work smarter, not, not harder. Um, and I think you can do you can do both, as you just said, um, Ian. I think you can work smarter and harder. I think working smart's good because um, there's a lot of technology out there um, that can that can help you. Uh, we don't use uh, plaster of Paris for casting uh, for many years now, since the early '90s. Um, I was one of the first in the country to begin using um, uh, CAD CAM when everybody thought back then it was just a fad and it would never would never uh, last. And, and and now everyone, you know, a lot of people uh, use that. I'm not saying that. Plaster uh, doesn't work either, but I mean, clearly, just a couple of seconds, you get a nice 3D sub one millimeter accurate um, scan of a foot. Um, in my opinion, that's working smart, um, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard as well. Yeah, I and, think. Uh, last, last question. Sorry, Craig. Last I question. Gonna... I promise, and then I'll move on. Okay. Um, 
I always I always wonder about this UK forum that we have when we have little ding dongs in there as we do. I always wonder what would someone think who didn't know everyone in this group who just kind of came in. You know, I often think what would a member of the public think if they saw this group? Now you're not a member of the public, but you joined the group three days ago and you read that thread and you don't know anyone in that thread, myself included, not that I was in the thread. Um, as, as an outsider, and what I mean by that is as a, you know, for someone from, from a different country, just reading through that, that group alone, did it give you a bit of a vibe of what the current status in the UK is private practice wise? And if it did, what was your initial thought? Are we in a good place? Are we in a bad place? Where, where are we at? Uh, what was your sort of completely uh, impartial sort of opinion on, on that interaction? Um, that's a big question to, <laughs> to ask. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think that what, what I will say is I think uh, you, you probably shouldn't uh, put any, you know, shouldn't say anything or type anything on the internet that you don't want read by, um, uh, by, by other people. Although it's a closed group, it's there and those comments are there uh, forever. I think there's a lot of, um, there's obviously a lot of different opinions um, and uh, maybe because the NHS has been such a big big thing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is is it is it is it relatively new for um, for practitioners in the UK to go out and on their on their own and set their own prices? Is that is that a new a new? Thing? Um, I, certainly, when I graduated, sort of you know, fifteen sixteen years ago, we, the model was you all went into the health service. Yes. the majority of people did, and then you sort of cut your teeth there, and, and you know um, made your mistakes there, and got your experience there, and then you moved into the private uh, potentially. Yes. I, I understand from the from the last stats that someone mentioned to me, not that I'm a big stats person, that there's far more people in private practice now than the health service. And I certainly speak to people who are saying there aren't health service jobs. So we've got a lot of people now, new graduates, moving into the health service as well. So I think it's probably different to the way it looked 15 years ago. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm no expert on that particular topic, I must confess. Yeah. yeah. I think obviously uh, it might be, there's obviously other opinions as well. So we have um, the, the, the professionals themselves, but the stakeholders are really the patients, uh, the patient, the public, the people that are coming to see you. So as I said before, um, you know, fair day's work for a fair day's pay, I think that... Uh, the patients that are coming to see you will dictate that. And maybe they have another opinion as to what they should be paying or whether they should be paying private fees or uh, maybe they, um, they've had a, a public uh, system and now that, you know, they, um, uh, they, maybe that's the, that's where the challenge uh, lies. I don't know, but I think um, the best, the best way to be paid uh, what your work, what you're worth, I should say, is to, is just to do, to do a good job, to, to be very thorough, um, to, to get outcomes. I guess, in our business, it's kind of primarily a service industry um, and it comes down to service. If we're able to serve that patient well and fix their problem um, and get them back on, um, I think what we need to do is actually begin to speak about not a price but um, a, a benefit or a worth. So it's not it, it take the conversation away from being um, about a, a price or what it's going to cost you to what the benefit is. And I think a lot of people would be uh, more, you know, more happy to pay a reasonable fee if they were uh, getting a good outcome, they were getting healthy, getting their you know, foot pain, their, their body, knee pain fixed um, and getting back into, into life. Mm. Absolutely. Um, right. Anything, sorry, Craig, I interrupt you then. Did you want to dive in or do you want me to move Well, I was just to, thinking uh, about this work smarter um, and work harder. I, I, I think Greg and I probably need to move to Venus where the, 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 the day is 4,000 hours. So <laughs> it's, it's, I, I could do with a few more hours and a bit more, bit more coffee too. Yeah, I, I like to think I, I, I work smart, but I work hard, but it's just there's never enough hours in a day. I, I just, you just just 
can't get things done. You know, so need a longer day, more than twenty four hours. So yeah, I always think good. as well. I always think as well in private practice when I when I've spoken to practitioners, I'm in private practice too. People equate working hard with seeing patients. So if someone says work harder to them is thirty patients a day, and and working less hard is ten patients a day. And and for me, I mean. It's not about the patient numbers. I probably do. I do as many hours, if not more, away from patients as I do yes. with patients. So I think um, I agree. some people, when they when they hear about working harder, they're thinking about filling their day with patients. And for me, uh, um, again, I'm no expert on this topic. So I'm no, gonna, I, I'm I think on. that's that's good. It's about outcomes, about number of successful outcomes, and that really does take, as you say, it does take um, a lot of time away from the patients. Not just charting uh, notes properly, but it's writing letters. Um, if you've got uh, medical specialists or, or GPs or allied health practitioners sending patients to you, I've always tried to get a really good, you know, concise but thorough one to two page uh, letter back and reports and let them know, follow up with the patient. Um, so there is a lot of things that actually occur outside of the, the, um, the clinical room, isn't there? Yeah, yeah definitely. There's a, there's a... Sorry, just, just on oh, that, um, I, I just, this is more of a clinical question, but let's put a business spin on it. Let me just... Sh- I just want to share my screen. I'm not sure, Greg, I think Ian probably would have seen it, what I posted on Facebook yesterday. Let me just share my screen. And um, there was a study here that came out that showed that 50% of those with plantar fasciitis still have it after five years. 45% still have it after 10 years. And I was absolutely horrified at that. Um, and and the, the point you're, you're making about outcomes and – like, to me, treating someone clinically for plantar fasciitis, I, I've always had this general rule of thumb. If, if you haven't reduced half their symptoms in a month, you're probably not doing something right. So, wonder Or it's not plantar fasciitis. <laughs> well, well, no, let's, let's assume the diagnosis was right. But just I wonder yeah. from a business perspective, you're talking about outcomes. I mean, I see that as an horrific outcome. Oh, uh, it is, I, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, that, um, uh, you know, if you, if you had uh, that number of patients that weren't getting getting better after that time, um, then I think you need to probably question uh, the way that you're um, approaching the program yeah. because we certainly have a far better success rate than that. Yeah. Would you agree with my rule of the thumb that you want to see half the symptoms gone in a month? Um, yeah, well, I'd certainly want to be seeing them going in a, in, in, in that direction, yeah. uh, whether it's half or whether it's more. Uh, I think they, you know, we, we actually would, would ask the um, questions about their, their quality of quality of life what they can do, what they couldn't do before. Um, we have, uh, we actually have a, um, we did a, a clinical um, study on heel pain, just, you know, within internally a while back. And we didn't really, I mean, ask about their, their, not just their level of pain, but what they were able to do um, that they couldn't do before. Because sometimes um, uh, we, there are conditions that we, we can't, we can't cure. Um, uh, our learned colleague from um, uh, California, Dr. David Armstrong refers to um, the diabetic uh, foot disease ulceration and Charcot's foot as a like a cancer, cancer. Yeah. cure. The patient always has it, but you're trying to get uh, Im- uh, improved outcomes for the patient. So whether you can cure uh, plantar fasciitis or should be talking about a cure anyway, whether you should be talking about you know reducing significantly reducing their symptoms, getting them back to life, and looking at all sorts of other things as well. It's not just a magic bullet, is it? You put a orthotic in shoe and. Uh, send them on their way. I mean, you've got to basically look at their, their lifestyle and you've got to ask them about their health and uh, whether they're stretching and look at their, uh, their, 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 their weight, their smoking, all the other medical issues. You've got to, um, you've got to use uh, allied health uh, practitioners um, as well as part of the um, process. 
um, you know, stretching for wear. Um, there's all sorts of things and making sure that the GP is also aware of what you're doing. So in case there's a, a medical reason, yeah. might have, uh, they might have, um, you know, uh, hypertension or, and they're just worried about um, exercising or something like that and they might need some, some counselling there or, you know, so th- this really involves the, 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 the full gamut of... Oh, yeah. No, but I think, I think that's the problem. When, you, when I look, you delve into some of these patient support groups with plantar fasciitis, they try this, it doesn't work. They try that, it doesn't work. They try that, it doesn't work. That's not how you manage someone clinically. You know, that's why people have it for 10 years, you know. Um, it's, it's true, yeah, we, yeah. We've got a bit of a push in the UK at the moment, um, led by a couple of colleagues to try and sort of really put podiatry, podiatrists on the map. Uh, you may have seen this, Craig, um, for, yeah. for plantar heel pain, plantar fasciopathy, etc. You know, because it certainly isn't the case that we're the first people that people come to or, or think of. Uh, and I think it's a great, an incredibly great thing to do. And there's a lot of hard work going on behind the scenes from various people. And, and this, this, this study uh, alerts you to the fact that it's great that, let's say we get our message out there and we, we, we succeed in becoming the people that everyone with plantar heel pain comes to that's only half the job, right? We need to then make sure we're equipped to appropriately diagnose, appropriately treat, appropriately manage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, and then the, the question I want to divert to here is, do you, you have over, over 50 clinics, over 100 podiatrists working for you? Um, yes. Obviously, they're all treating patients and you're hoping that they're getting patients better. But how much, uh, let me talk about CPD within your organisations, because clearly, you know, the way that we get good at diagnosing, diagnosing, managing, etc. is with, with onward study and, and keeping up to date with literature. What's the CPD sort of um, set up in your practice? How much time do you dedicate to it? How much worth do you, do you sort of um, uh, attach to it? Uh, we're, we're just continually um, looking at our professional uh, development um we actually have a team uh, dedicated for that we have an education uh team and we do a monthly um uh, webinar uh where we get you know uh, you know 100 or so uh, podiatrists and some of them uh, the other staff as well support staff and uh, we get them basically uh, viewing in we've we've had um we've had you know overseas um very highly respected um practitioners in podiatry and other disciplines um do these webinars for us so uh, we um, we encourage uh, our podiatrists to go out and do external stuff as well at conferences, and we help contribute to their um, to their education expenses. Um, but we onboard our graduates uh, very well. We have a registrar program, and we have a transitional program from when they graduate um, to a podiatrist. So um, it's it's kind of like an induction program that our team have worked on, and a mentoring program. Uh, and that program is actually um, uh, is run by the the mentor, uh, which, which is a senior podiatrist in the in, in the clinic, um, and uh, the mentor as well as the graduate podiatrist um, come together, and it's a very structured uh, program. We we um, just looking through uh, it now, and we have a, a time frame of uh, zero to to two years. Um, uh, we look at um, their clinical attributes and clinical responsibilities and self improvement for them. Um, and we have uh, an onboard program that happens from, from day one. We have day one goals, week one goals, and then month goals, and then yearly goals. And uh, it's a structured program where every week um, our graduates, I think we took on um, over 20 graduates last year, and um, they will all um, sign in once a week uh, for um, a, 
program that's run by our education officer. Um, and it'll be on, sometimes I do those uh, webinars, it'll be on um, the building blocks of GATE or it'll be on, it'll be on something clinical that might be on, on some other part of their professional development. So long answer, but Ian, we take it very seriously. It's a, it's mm. a very big part. I think education, knowledge is, is king, right? It's the key to, yeah. uh, to getting those um, uh, positive outcomes. It's the key to uh, getting those um, uh, financial rewards that you're discussing before that, uh, that the UK is so interested in. Um, there's a lot of hard work that comes before you can, uh, you can have those, um, those financial rewards. It's, you know, you, we, I mean, I've been out now since 92, uh, 26 years. I nearly said 29. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a long time ago. But um, since 92, and uh, I, I, still, um, I still learn. I did a course recently on um, uh, making custom footwear, and I'm learning all the time about orthotics and prosthetics and uh, making splints and braces, and we're starting to 3D print um, orthotics now and uh, AFOs and, you know, super malleable orthotics. So I'm... I'm constantly learning. And the one thing that's really, really fascinating there to pick up on is your, um, it was a question that came in actually, so we sort of merged into it, is your mentoring program for the new grads, which is the one thing over here that, that I suspect if, if you asked a new grad their reticence to go straight into private practice, it would be, well, where, where am I going to get that support in those first few years? And we all know how important those first few years are for, for, for practice. Um, how... How 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 early on did you start providing that? Like, what? Because clearly, there's clearly it can be done. Clearly, you can support someone privately in in a way that makes them feel like they're in the health service. Do you think you need a certain number of staff to do that? Clearly, you've almost got a whole NHS podiatry department numbers-wise working for you. Whereas if someone comes into a practice and it's maybe two or three clinicians and they're all working alongside each other, seeing patients at the same time, it's a bit more challenging to deliver. At what stage in your career did you start sort of enforcing that that mentorship uh, for new grads? I, I guess it was probably, I graduated in 92. I, I guess it was probably the late 90s. I, I probably did um, seven seven years or so of, um, of hard work building up the, the, the clinic um, and then from from day from day one, um, our, the current CEO of our group, Darren, was one of our first podiatrists to join our team. And uh, you know, um, he he's a fantastic mentor now. Um, you know, for I think the yeah, the old adage, "See one, do one, teach one." I mean, Darren was brilliant, <laughs> brilliant young podiatrist, and uh, has become a great mentor. So I think you actually have to put mentorship into mentors, if you know what I mean. So we actually have a our mentor program mentors the mentor as well. We talk about um, the mentoring relationship, the quality uh, of a good mentor, what makes a good mentor. Um, and then um, once we've trained them how to be good mentors, then they can onboard the, um, the podiatrist. But I guess it starts from day one. And even before that, a lot of our podiatrists have been students working in our clinics on reception or in the lab or, uh, you know, just doing work for us and we get to learn them. So we, we have... Um, uh, at, uh, at QUT here in, um, in, in, in Brisbane, we, we take on a lot of uh, new graduates, possibly every, uh, or every new graduate um, that, that's coming through um, has been exposed to one of our clinics and uh, they do other, other outside um, clinics in, in addition to, uh, to my foot doctor, but we have a very good working relationship with the university here. So I guess what I'm trying to say is even from even before graduation, we're trying to uh, mentor them, show them how. But when they come out... Um, Ian, uh, they don't um, they don't just have a patient list and you know say there you go that's that's it you're you're out there to start billing. 
for us, which is sort of what happened to me. Uh, you know, when I came out, I started um, in, in Balimba in the leafy suburb of Balimba in 1992. We had about two patients a week um, and we've built that up now and our, um, our business, you know, looks after a lot, a lot more than that. Um, but I, I had to learn from the school of hard knocks and I guess um, now, nowadays we, we don't want to just put a podiatrist out and, 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 and have them looking after a full case list themselves. So they might spend the first few months just, just, just watching, sitting in the room with their, um, uh, with their mentor. Uh, and we, it's a full registrar program. Uh, they, have to, they have to pass, they have to do exams through the year. Uh, we set um, a high benchmark for them. And when they come out, we believe that they become better, better graduates after having gone through that program. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Greg, because I, I, I'm sure, sure you've seen the figures here in Australia that the average longevity in the profession after graduation is like seven or eight years, which is yeah. um, people leave early, people leave yeah. late. And I, I came up with this law quite a few years ago that, the, the, that stated that the longevity in the profession is directly proportional to the quality of their first job. And... and I think that's, that's very likely. When I have recent graduates rung me when I was still at the university complaining about their employer, I was absolutely horrified at how they were being treated. And then those same employers complain that they can't get staff. Um, so I think what you're doing is obviously is dealing with that, that exact issue. Um, but yeah. I also want to also want to comment on that. Just It's more of a little bit of a joke, but that uh, see one, do one, teach one. There is another version of that. It's see one, do one, screw one up but then learn from it, then teach it. So it's learning from your mistakes. So I always like to get that screw it up bit in there because it's the, you know, it's an important part of that process. I agree. I think fail, failure is part of, is part of everything and hopefully we don't fail too badly with a patient. But I think minimising um, the risk of doing that by having that very close relationship with their mentor for the first year, the first 12 months out, um, it will help to um, reduce those, those, those errors. And, uh, you know, they have a... They have a very uh, very structured program. They have a, an intense twelve week course where we. Uh, so in in addition to um, learning about their mentor, uh, their um, you know their career through their mentor and and, and seeing, you know basic but also very complex cases from from day one. I, I had my uh, my um, um, my my uh, mentee uh, now um, my the podiatrist that I'm but with me on on Mondays when I see patients. Uh, we we had a an extremely complex uh, patient. Even for me, after 26 years, it was a very complex. And this is the this is the her first day on the job, so she's not just in the back sitting, um, mm. you know, trimming toenails or something. She's actually w- working with a with a, a team. Um, and uh, then she sees some of the other um, mentors on on other days as well. But we look at you know the anatomy of a consultation and how to sort of structure it. So how to get the um, you know the, ask the right questions to um, to get the, the right information from the patient so that we're able to help them. Um, that's one of the first ones. And we looked through Doppler, neurological. I saw the, the great Doppler and, and vascular um, talk that you guys did a couple of weeks back. It was fantastic. And we do things like advanced gait analysis, uh, running, specific sport assessments, cryotherapy, uh, you know, um, orthotics, prosthetics, uh, podorthics, custom shoes, neuroma, forefoot stuff, posterior tibial dysfunction, Alex Velgus, Avoid foot, you know. Uh, so th- these are all the things that we um, we look at in a very very um, intense uh, way in the first twelve weeks, um, but then they're being mentored through the whole year. It sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. Um, off the back of that, another business question, really. How do you go uh, from 
moving into private practice, perhaps starting up your own clinic, you, you know, you're a private practitioner with a clinic to where you are now, which is, as we said, over, over, over a hundred podiatrists in over 50 clinics, uh, yeah. which is, which is, there's, I don't believe, I, I, and someone will comment and tell me if I'm wrong. I don't believe anyone is at that level in the UK. To, to my knowledge uh, obviously we're a wee bit smaller than, than, than Australia um, size wise but I mean how, how do you if you don't mind telling us how do you go from I'm going to be a pro practitioner to suddenly you know uh, I'm going to be where, where you are what's the journey what's the what's the I think one question that came in was what was the biggest turning point um, you know talk us through it if you don't mind Oh, no, not, not at all. Um, well, as I said, I, I started and was a sole practitioner for, for a number of years. Um, I went out and did some, some sports medicine um, courses at the University of Queensland. I, I, I worked in the Norfolk Island Hospital uh, going back um, uh, every three months or so, and I was kind of looking for, you know, new, new things to do, and we built it up. Um, my wife and I had built up one of the biggest uh, clinics in, in, in Brisbane, but it was still... Uh, you know, sole practitioner. Then I started uh, um, employing um, a podiatrist. Uh, Darren came along. He was one of one of my first. He was my first. Uh, you know, one of my first podiatrists. Uh, and then we um, we I guess started thinking about um, bigger picture. I had a couple of patients say, "Look, this is this is great. You could um, you know you could." Uh, I remember one one patient. She was very high profile, um, uh, and she said, "You could." you can do this all over the world, you know, if you get systems in place. So I started thinking, okay, we need to have systems. We need to write down manuals. And this was right, you know, back in the early days and um, Sally and Darren and myself and some of our other um, stakeholders, the podiatrists in the group started working on a manual. And I guess we, um, I surrounded myself around very smart people. I think you have to know that you're not the smartest person in the room. And I think then that's, that's probably the, the key. Um, you know, my, my strength is, is my passion for podiatry and innovation. Um, and, and, but, but I've, we've got a, a great team around us that does other things. So we've got an acquisition team. We, we started um, opening up in other clinics because we, there was a need for it. We had general practitioners saying, look, it's too far to go to refer them, um, you know, an hour or two hours from where you are. Can you start something out here? So we, we would do that and we'd put another podiatrist on and we'd use those systems that we'd learned, you know, and I've been doing video gap analysis since the, uh, since the early two thousands uh, and structure, you know, structuring the, the consultation, uh, the anatomy of a consultation. Um, and I, I guess the, the turning, uh, the turning point, I, I guess w- w- it was probably changing um, the, the name from Greg Dower podiatry uh, to my, to my foot doctor podiatry centers uh, because it had to reflect a partnership when Darren, um, joined uh, the, the group and brought into um, the, the group from uh, my wife and I. Um, we, we couldn't call it Greg Dow Podiatry, so we changed the name. Um, and then uh, I guess it was all about branding, getting that name out there. As uh, as Craig uh, alluded to before, we uh, we, we had a, a bit of funny um, media about taking over the, the Queensland Bulls because Forex was uh, you you only know Fosters over there, I know, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Forex <laughs> is quite an iconic beer here, probably, you know, and um, and so um, uh, I think there was a, there was a lot of people that you know, just loved the beer and they and they didn't know why we were we were doing it, but it's actually good publicity. It was good publicity when they were you know um, rubbishing us, uh, you know, in the uh, in the early days. But then we became uh, we've got, we've got a fantastic relationship with uh, with with Queensland cricket and and cricket in general, and it's a great sport. And uh, um, I guess the uh, moving to different premises and getting bigger. Um, uh, support teams. I think the the support team, um, the robust um, 
team that we've got to support our, our group of clinics, our network of clinics, is really when it started um, changing. And then we were lucky enough, fortunate enough to meet um, uh, uh, Glenn Richards uh, from uh, Green Cross Vets uh, and uh, looking at uh, you know strategic um, way that we uh, we expand in the future. So you're you're still you're still seeing patients from from the discussions we've had so far. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And that's right. always been that's because I know a lot of people, probably myself included, if I'm honest, would get to where you are, and you wouldn't see me probably touching another patient. Uh, is it? Mm-hmm. Is that an intentional decision for you? Is that is that where your passion is? I I, I guess primarily um, I still think of myself as a, a, a as a as a practitioner um, certainly on on, on Mondays. Uh, but um, no, I I hope that uh, I will continue to be able to see patients my my whole career. I enjoy it. I enjoy the mentoring. I enjoy the challenge. I look after some pretty uh, challenging cases now. Sharko's uh, feet that have. You know, collapse and we make custom shoes, we make braces, we 3D print splints. Um, I'm working with um, surgeons and endocrinologists and rehabilitation physicians, uh, physiotherapists uh, in a big way. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's actually very rewarding for me uh, to, have, um, to have that patient um, have a really positive outcome. And I, I still walk into the clinic now and I see uh, some, you know, routine so general, you know, uh, nail and skin patients um, in, in, my, in my waiting room that I looked after, you know, 26 years ago, and they're still coming in and uh, we still have a good conversation, good chat. I don't do that work anymore because my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. Um, but um, I, the, the patient um, podiatrist relationship is really important to me. And uh, I think that's, you know, if there's any advice out there, I would give to anyone that's listening that wants to take my advice. <laughs> Probably not many. I, I think that... That really, I oh, don't laugh. <laughs> they say, oh, no, Greg, no. No, I think the relationship that you have with a patient um, is, uh, is, par- is paramount and it's got to be trust. And I think be yourself. Find out who you are. Find out um, what personality you are and be yourself. Be genuine. I think patients can, you know, the old sniff test, uh, it's very easy for them to pass that if you're trying to pass yourself off as somebody else. Uh, I think as long as they realise that you're on their side and you're, you're actually um, trying to win the battle uh, for them and you roll up your sleeves and do the hard work and get them better, then uh, they'll be a patient for life. And it's testimony to not just my, my patients, but all of my, all of, we've got podiatrists that have been with us for, you know, 15 years. We've got a very good, very loyal workforce. And um, I know that they've got patients that are returned and they come down, they bring their kids and eventually they bring their grandkids and, you know, um, mm. or to be part of that relationship with the patient. Is your, is your wife a podiatrist, Greg? No, no, no. My wife is not not a podiatrist, but she's a very, very good, very good patient lady. Um, and uh, she uh, she's the mother of two of two of the most beautiful young ladies in the world, um, Laura and Emily. Emily just turned sixteen yesterday, sweet sixteen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Sally's no, Sally set up the business with me in the early days and spent you know many many days where she was working fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hours a day, uh, as we all were back in the early days, and. Uh, She's earned a bit of a rest from the clinic. <laughs> but you're still working 14 to 16 hours a day, aren't you? Uh, yeah, to be true. Um, <laughs> she I, isn't, but she isn't anymore. <laughs> I, I, thrive on, I thrive on that. I really, um, I, I, like working, um, I like working hard. I like getting good outcomes. Um, I like mentoring uh, younger uh, podiatrists and uh, uh, I like the relationship I, with specialists and, and, and doctors and GPs and physios over the years. 
You think either of your daughters will go into podiatry, Greg? I don't think they so. must be. They must be one pretty them, surrounded by it, right? One of them's just yeah. One of them yeah. Well, from from the other days, but I remember Sally taking uh, Laura in at two weeks of age into the into the into the clinic uh, in the little bassinet because uh, Sally was, you know, chief. Um, cook and bottle washer and everything back then. So Sally was the receptionist and the accountant and uh, the business manager. <laughs> yeah, so um, we've got a lot to thank uh, our, um, our, our wives for. They're very patient. I know that um, some of the other, <laughs> all of the other um, uh, senior uh, uh, clinicians and, um, uh, and uh, support uh, people in our, in our um, support team, in our group, that are married or, or in relationships. I mean, they've got very understanding partners as well because we're all working towards something bigger. Yeah. Well, the question's just come in. The question's just come in from, uh, from Mike Ross. Do you think it's harder to do what you've done uh, now, given the number of podiatrists that are around? So could someone else 2018 just graduating in 25 years time be where you are? Do you think that's feasible given the way things are now different? I, I think they're different because there's more um, there's more podiatrists, but I think there's more people that need our services and more people that are aware of our services. Uh, so I think uh, that as the public become more aware of what podiatry uh, does, uh, as we educate the doctors, the referring doctors, we did a study a little while back and we found that um, 80% or more people would go to the GP first with a foot complaint and only uh, slightly less than 50% um, of the population that we surveyed, there was about 2,000 people, it was quite a good survey. Or thereabouts, that number anyway. Maybe it was 500, I'm not sure. But uh, um, they um, didn't even know what podiatry did. So less than half of people knew what we what we did. So I think we've got a long way to go to educate the public and the referring um, doctors that we that we that we work with, and allied health uh, practitioners. But I, I think it's possible. I think anything's possible. It's an aging population. I think that um, the uh, the number of podiatrists, uh, but also the, the the number of patients requiring our treatment, will increase. Mm. Excellent. Right. Go on, sorry, Craig. I was going to say, why don't, why don't we just move into a little bit of cricket issues? And a good way to start that, we actually had a question come in a wee while ago um, from Toby. From Toby, yeah, sorry. It's, it's a bit of a cheeky question, but it said, can you ask Greg about David Warner? And I, I'm assuming that's referring to what happened a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, David's a very, very passionate, very spirited player. Yeah. But why don't, look, let, let me, I'm just going to share a, a cricket video and then we can get some discussion going from that. So just give me a moment to share my screen. Now, this is a slow motion video of a fast bowler. So what I, what I want people to do is have a look at his back and his foot plant. It slows down and you, you, and then people start to wonder why metatarsal stress fractures are a problem in fast bowlers and start to wonder why low back problems are a problem in fast bowlers. And I think it's pretty obvious when you see that foot being banged onto the ground there, but you can also see what the back is doing. Hyperextended so, knee as well. So, Greg, I just wonder if you want to comment on... on dealing with that kind of problem in cricketers? <laughs> well, yeah, fast, fast bowling is a very unnatural um, set of movements for the body, isn't it? It's the, it's the rotation on the spine and, of course, the uh, bending and flexing movements uh, through, through the bones. As you, as you pointed out, I mean, you can see quite clearly how the, 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 the forefoot becomes dorsiflexed on the, uh, 
on the turf when they when, when they hit. And um, yeah, it is it is a and it's just matter of uh, a matter of um, balancing loads, isn't it? I mean, that's basically they think referred to as the tissue stress theory. It's a matter of balancing loads uh, in in the spine, in the shin, uh, in the ankle, in the in the uh, metatarsals. Um, and uh, I think you know some changes you can make with uh, with with footwear. And I think you know cricket shoes have you know have really improved um, over the last uh, um, twenty or thirty years or so. Some of the older players um, that I speak with from the nineteen seventies used to play in leather sold shoe, you know, full leather shoes. Um, and I've actually seen um, seen one of them, and um, it, you know, you can't imagine banging into the turf. Um, and trying to generate speeds of up to 160. This this fellow was well known for bowling over 160 k's an hour, and um, uh, hitting the ground with a thick leather soled shoe would have been uh, challenging. I don't think they played as much cricket back then as they do now. But yeah, so, it's a matter of balancing loads, the um, the time that they're playing, and and then also the strength, the conditioning of the players, they're um, they're looked after by the physios. Oh, yeah, um, and they're very knowledgeable about these injuries. I think I, I, think I said to you, Greg, uh, I look after a professional cricket team and uh, the last three, at least two, I think it was, but certainly at least two, maybe three fast bowlers I've seen all had posterior ankle impingement on their landing leg. Yeah. Which posterior, posterior ankle impingement is something I don't really find that difficult to treat in a, in a different population. But in cricketers, particularly fast bowlers, it's just like it's just a nightmare. Um, it is, yeah. So, uh, do you? How do you approach it? Because we we found that we have to sort of you can't change their bowling. It's the one thing that, that you can't touch. You can't go anywhere near. So we find that we have to modify everything else around it, just so that hopefully it's offloaded enough, so that when they come to, to bowl their overs, you know. It, it, it's going to get sore afterwards, but not quite so sore. Have you got any tips? This is probably a personal question. You've got any tips for me, posterior ankle impingement in fast bowlers? Because I struggle big time with this. Uh, well, again, it's just a matter, it's a matter of load. It's a matter of rest. And it's a matter of uh, working on, uh, you know, calf flexibility. Um, you've got to be careful about um, modifying the shoe, as you said, not just because of their action and it's a very specific action, but also because you're going to rob Peter and pay Paul. So if you, you know, dorsiflex or plantarflex, um, you, you're going to transfer to the anterior ankle or you're going to transfer to the, the knee or you're going to, you know, so you have to be very careful about modifying um, biomechanics. Um, but I think there's certain things you can do with the sole of the shoe underneath and uh, maybe um, a small rocker in the, in the forefoot um, uh, and, and maybe even in the rear foot as well to help improve um, ankle alignment. But simply um, increasing or decreasing the heel pitch um, is, 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 is a bit difficult. That's very challenging posterior. Mm. Yeah, it's very hard to fix, and and often a lot of those end up in surgery and have an arthroscope. To be honest with you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm glad to hear that. I thought it was just me being uh, incredibly poor at my job. A question just coming from Pip, Pip Phelps. Um, are you guys feeling the impact of physios prescribing orthoses? I suspect. I, I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I suspect the way that's worded is. Given that physios do prescribe orthoses, do you, as a business, uh, feel the impact? I. At least that's the way I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. You know, is it? Uh, I guess two yeah. things. Firstly, do you, I don't think she's asking whether you think physios should prescribe orthoses, which I know is a can of worms that often gets opened. It's, it's do you as a business um, feel the impact? At least I think that's her question. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. Uh, the honest answer is I don't, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that we, uh, we're, we're foolish if, uh, if, as a profession, podiatry thinks we're the only ones that look after our feet and ankles. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts there's physios and chiros and uh, even um, uh, sports medicine doctors uh, are working in this, in this field. I don't think we own it. I think we, uh, um, I we're part of a bigger team. And I think it comes down to what you do uh, in the room uh, with the patient and what you do. Uh, to protect your your market, so if you 're good at what you do and you're and you 're giving the patient um, good um, and this is the question you 're asking before about you know value value for money if you if you set your fees ridiculously high well then people doesn 't matter how good you are, people probably are going to look uh, look elsewhere so I think you have to manage all of those things very carefully um, but uh, I think you should be looking after your own um, your own backyard and making sure that your own patients are getting you know really excellent um, outcomes. Um, from podiatry services, and then they'll and if they're getting good value for money, and you, and there's a good relationship, um, then they'll come back year after year. Yeah, I agree. I, I often find um, I, I I don't care who prescribes orthoses. To be honest, everyone can do it. it doesn't bother me. It doesn't I don't lose sleep. I often find the people that complain uh, quite a lot about it. Then you, ch- you continue chatting to them, and they say, "Oh, I'm going on a mobilisation course. I'm doing my steroid injection therapy." And I think to myself, "Well, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> you know, like it, you can't." Try and keep something for yourself, and then spread your wings. Uh, you, you know, uh, I think there's enough people out there for all of us, and I, I echo what you said. I agree. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's. I mean, everyone walks on a hard, hard surface, and uh, you know, um, people are going to get pain in their in their in their feet or their knees or their back or hips from time to time, and uh, it's it's foolish to assume that we're the only profession that are going to be looking after what happens inside a shoe. Yeah. Another question from Pip. Um, given that you work within elite sport, can we call Australian cricket elite? Is that still a reasonable... Uh... Well, it depends. Ian, don't forget, I, I have control of a mute button here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, they're, they're, we promise no crickets. We promise no sledging. That was the... Given your sort of interaction with, with you know, the elite, the elite of the elite when it comes to sort of... Um, athletes sports people um do you find they're more likely listen more likely to listen to the physio than they are to you or do they listen more to physiotherapists than they do podiatrists in your experience i think it depends on what sort of relationship you have with the physio often the physio is the i guess medical director of the group so they might have a sports medicine doctor who might um consult with uh, the team i look after um you know a few different teams as well cricket also the um brisbane the raw uh, football club here and we, and the physio is uh, you know great uh, there and he sort of takes that um, lead. If you have a good relationship with uh, with them, once he's referred or she has referred the, the, the patient on, um, then it becomes your um, you know your your job in the in the, in the room. And uh, I have a fantastic relationship with the physios. I don't think they listen to one more. Um, I think elite athletes always want to get better. So sometimes if you if you, um, you know if you give them advice about rest, or they'll probably try and seek another opinion. <laughs> Getting told. <laughs> Yeah. on the weekend is always is always you know it's not what they what they want to hear and you've got to balance that information but um no i have a i have a i think it comes down to how how good a relationship you have with the um the medical director of the team whether it's the, the team physiotherapist or, or whether it's a, a gp sports medicine practitioner yeah, yeah. That's, my, that's my experience too definitely. and it's a respect yeah. it's a respect we, you know we are, we are running a little bit short of time but one one comment question has just come in and i think we probably address that the before I get that, the question was from Mike Ross about what's the most effective form of marketing that you've found within your group 
apart from the good uh, patient relationship and treatment. But before you answered it, it reminded me of a comment from an, uh, a marketing advertising guy many years ago, and he said, only half of all advertising works. The problem is working out which half it is. That's true. So, so what have you found most effective? Well, as you, as you, as you said, you answered the question for me. I think really having that great outcome, good relationship with the patient, sending information back to the doctors, um, they're all the, the, the sort of basic, you know, 101s of marketing. Um, but uh, it's a challenging field uh, the, um, with uh, uh, social Social media and, and internet and digital marketing, that's, that's the space is changing all the time. I think it helps to have a good, um, um, a good, I guess, marketing plan. And, and we, we're very lucky at My Foot Doctor. We do have a, a solid marketing team um, that uh, Darren, our CEO, sort of runs. And we have a local area um, marketing um, uh, officer. And we also have a, a general manager of, 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 of marketing. And then we all chip in at marketing meetings. So... Um, I think you have to have um, you have to sort of be I guess playing a few different hands at the same time. Um, actually, out of curiosity, do you do any TV advertising? We do in regional. Uh, regional, yeah. It's difficult, I think, to get uh, exposure and get good value in a major city. But um, in some of our uh, clinics, we merge with Balance, uh, and they're they're very good at um, uh, working in um, in regional. Um, locations with uh, a bit of uh, retail, a bit of uh, footwear uh, and uh, dietary services together. And I think they get a, a reasonably good outcome uh, from uh, from TV uh, marketing in those yeah. areas. Well, that, that, that's been my yeah. observation. There's a, few yeah. clinics, there's a few clinics down here in Victoria and rural area who do use TV very well, but you just can't yeah. get the exposure in the city. You know, for, expensive. Yeah. yeah, very expensive. It's, re- it's, really, uh, it's really interesting to hear you say, Greg, you've said it a couple of times now when it comes to uh, not just good practice, but it's it, marketing as well about sending a report or, you know, consultation report or a letter back to the referrer or to the patient mm. himself or the patient's GP. Um, a guy who I look up to a lot in London, uh, Trevor Pryor, I'm not sure if you've heard of him. And, um, oh, I know, I know I remember, well. uh, Yeah, I remember him saying to me uh, very, very early on in my career, he said to me, the, the, the most effective form of marketing is your letter back to the, to the doctor, to the patient, whoever. Is you can give someone a business card all you want and they'll lose it, they'll put it in their wallet, it's yeah. gone. But you just dish out good quality letters for every patient you see. And 15 yeah. years on, it's still, and I still now tell this to, to, to students as well. I think if, other than social media, it's the, the best form of free marketing we have. And it's really, really kind of, I guess, interesting to hear you say the same thing as well. I agree with you and uh, and Trevor and anyone else who prescribes to that theory. I mean, it's not just marketing either. These uh, these doctors have sent a patient to us. They actually do they do they do want to get that feedback. They do want you. Yeah. You talk to the GP specialist. They they enjoy reading a good a good letter back because you know often a specialist will construct a, a very good you know one or two or even more three page letter about their patient. And I think you owe it to them and to the patient to have that correspondence going backwards and forwards. It's, it's a bonus, in my opinion, that it's fantastic marketing, but you actually owe that to the patient and to the referring practitioner, first, first and foremost. Okay, look, we, I think we've just run out of time. Look, before we finish, some of you may be wondering about my background here. Um, for those of you that haven't recognised it, Greg recognised it, Ian didn't recognise it, but that's Graceland. <laughs> and, and I was trying to be subtle with Greg, but before we finish, Greg, I, I hope, hope you don't mind me asking you this. Do you want to just move your camera and, and share with everyone your dining room? 
<laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I could, I could do that if anyone's interested. It's a, have it's you, a... put, Craig? Have you put some trousers on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, a 1950 style. For, donut, for those a... of you who missed the start, Greg, Greg plays in a band called the Big Cats, which is an Elvis tribute. Blue, band. Blue Cats. <laughs> it <were> iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so look. Anyway, it's but the the hour's gone. There have been a number of comments and questions that we haven't got to. I did make a comment before we started to end that we should start recycling our guests after 12 months to, to revisit the, the comments and the questions that we haven't got to. So, so thanks Greg so much for the hour. Pleasure, um, thanks Greg. It's been, been very good, very helpful. Pleasure, Ian. Pleasure, Craig. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So thanks again. Um, for those of you who haven't done so, please head over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. Um, like us on Facebook so you can get notified of when we do these in the future. Um, we also have an email list through our website, so um, please head over there. So thanks again, Greg. Pleasure, guys.